Welcome to Tea and Tattle, a podcast where we hold candid conversations on creativity, books, well-being and everything in between. I'm your host Miranda Mills and today I'm joined by the writer Alicia Drake to chat about her debut novel I Love You Too Much. I met Alicia at her book launch earlier this year and I'm so pleased to have her on Tea and Tattle to talk about her haunting novel. When writing I Love You Too Much, Alicia drew on her experience of living in Paris for many years and her book shows a different, darker side to Paris as seen through the eyes of her protagonist, a young French teenager called Paul. In today's interview, Alicia tells me about her own experience living in Paris and how her observations of Parisians informed her writing. I was so impressed to learn that Alicia wrote a full draft of her novel in French, just so she could perfect the voice of her characters. It's this kind of attention to detail that makes Alicia's writing truly memorable and her characters feel incredibly real. We also have a fascinating chat about the difference between French and British parenting styles and also how Alicia discovered a love for fiction writing whilst battling with depression. This is a brilliant discussion for anyone who's keen to learn more about the real Paris beyond the pretty cafes and delicious cheese and it's also wonderfully inspiring for anyone who is interested in writing themselves. Let's get started with the show. Hello, Alicia. Thank you so much for coming on Tea and Tattle today. I'm so excited. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it's really wonderful to have you. I mean, I had such a fun time meeting you at your book launch of I Love You Too Much. So I'm really pleased that we're getting to have a chat today. Great. But so to start things off, would you just tell me a little bit about yourself? How did you go from studying history at Cambridge to working as a fashion journalist in Paris? Um, yes. <laughs> how did I do that? Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes looking back, I think I'm not sure how that happened. So what happened was I did a short journalism course and then I started doing some writing for Fashion Weekly, um, which I don't think exists anymore. That was in London. Um, And then I was writing stuff for The Times, but more kind of shopping stuff. And I didn't want to do that. And then I got married and we decided to go and live in Paris for six months. So we literally rented a kind of white um, van and we stuck all our stuff in there and we drove across to Paris with the idea of staying for six months. And then we stayed for 18 years. And <laughs> I just started freelancing literally from my dining room table. But <laughs> it was a pretty sad, dark time. So this was before email. And I used to have to go to the post office and fax ideas back to um, publications in England and America and sort of stand in a queue at the post office to send my fax. Oh, <laughs> it's so bad. So I started freelancing that way. And eventually I was writing. So I used to write about fashion for uh, the International Herald Tribune and British Vogue and W and and Women's Wear Daily and, and people like that. But so it was really just probably quite a lot of will and 
sweat and tears that got me <laughs> that got me from history at Cambridge to writing about fashion. <laughs> and then I remember one day, so I used to write in what's called a chambre de service or a chambre de bonne, which literally means a maid's room. So it was at the top of um, at the top of the apartments. Paris has this whole structure of life. So um, there are people who live in apartments, and then. There's some people who live in chambre de service, and normally these are people who are servicing the people who live in apartments, or their students, or in my case, it was a, a, a way of me having a, a cheap office. So I used mm-hmm. to live up there. It's very hot in the summer and very cold in the winter, and I used to work up there. And I remember having been a journalist for many years, sort of dragging in a really melodramatic way, dragging all my cuttings and magazines and stuff into the middle of the room, piling them up and thinking that's all I had to show for all the kind of years of, there's quite a lot of pain goes into writing and freelance writing. Mm. That's all I had to show for it. And I thought I just got to write a book. And so that's how I went from journalism to writing a nonfiction book about fashion. Um, Sorry, that's quite a long answer to a short question. (laughs) No, that's absolutely fascinating. So you clearly really fell in love with Paris as you stayed there for so long. But what were your initial impressions of the city? I mean, I read in an interview that you gave a while ago, that you disagree with the idea that Paris is this incredibly romantic place that so many of us picture full of soft cheese and wine and just cosy brasseries. Did you find that it was a hard place to live, especially when you were kind of trying to break into the fashion industry? Yeah, I mean, I think it is a really hard place to live. I think most people go and you go for the weekend. And and of course, it is beautiful and aesthetically glorious. Um, It's a very closed city, especially as um, what the French would call an Anglo-Saxon, as an English person or American person. When you go there, you don't know any of their codes, any of their... Um, moral codes, of their society codes, of their etiquette. And it's really a closed city behind closed doors. Everything happens behind closed doors. It's not like, say, New York, where everything happens in public, in kind of restaurants and, you know, parties. Parties happen in Paris, but they're in salon and you are invited to them. And there's a whole way of being that takes a very long time to learn and to uh, accept. So I went as quite just as an English, relatively bohemian person, and I had that pretty much knocked out of me over the years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there's ways to do a dinner party. I remember a friend saying to me, "You you can't serve pasta at a dinner. You know that's just not acceptable." Mm-hmm. Um, there's ways of addressing people. Um, there's books that you should read. It, it's very. It really is much more disciplined and much more. Um, stratified and not in a class way but but there's just things that you should do and ways that you should behave and that are acceptable so uh, that was one part of Paris that took me a long time to understand and to accept and then I think there is a darkness to Paris um, and to Parisians actually it's something I love about them I love their I love the fact that there is doubt within the city um, which I think has a lot to do with the occupation. So I think it has a really different atmosphere to it than people think having been there for a weekend on Eurostar um, and, you know, drunk some lovely glasses of Bordeaux and then go home. Yes. Oh, and I love, I mean, you you open your book um, with sort of describing how Paris is different really from how 
people imagine it and that there's this whole other side to Paris. And I found how you explored that really fascinating. But so how did you go from writing fashion-based non-fiction, sort of both journalism and then the book that you wrote, to wanting to write about fiction and wanting to put all of these experiences and ideas that you had about Paris into a novel? So what happened, I wrote a book called The Beautiful Fall, which is about Paris fashion in the 1970s, Yves Saint Laurent, Karl Lagerfeld, and, and basically the incredible creativity um, that mm. happened in visual arts and, and in fashion in the 70s. Um, shortly after that, I was sued by Karl Lagerfeld, oh. and I, I was sued for breach of privacy, and I won the case. Um, uh, but having won the case, I did have a very large... Uh, depression, which which lasted quite a long time, um, which was great in in many ways um, because it gave me a lot of time to reflect, and I started writing during that depression, writing notebooks and notebooks and notebooks, and out of that, mm. I kind of in a way wrote myself out of that depression, and out of that came the first idea for a novel, the first novel. Which, which actually, after eighteen months, I realised was not a novel at all, but it was just this thinly veiled autobiography <laughs> that was masquerading as a novel. Which I'm sure any novelist out there, any writer, um, is familiar with. You know, when you think you're creating fiction, and actually, um, it's just really you. Um, so <laughs> I kind of wrote myself out of that. So I kept writing, I kept writing, and I was able to get beyond that autobiographical story, put that away, and then I started three a series of three short stories and then I felt ah oh, this this is a story you know this I am creating fiction here now and from that short story uh, there was one particular image of a woman and a boy well sorry there was a woman and a, a son already in one of the short stories and from that came the idea of I love you too much Paul Paul, who is my central character, and I love you too much. He came out of this short story. Oh wow! Well, that's—I mean—it sounds like it was a horrible experience to go through with your first book. But how wonderful that it didn't put you off writing, and it in fact led you to discover fiction. Yeah, absolutely. It was a really horrible experience. It was a really strange experience. So I was pregnant with my fourth child. Um, and I was about eight months pregnant when I went to court. I didn't have to go to court. Actually, I decided to go because I wanted to sort of witness my destiny in a way. You don't have to go to court in France. It's not like in England. But mm. it's, it was really, really kind of like something out of Victor Hugo. It was it was um, the Palais de Justice, which is the massive courts of Paris. Mm. Um, but But it was an incredible experience too. And it was one of those experiences where I felt so understood by the French um, and so uh, supported, you know, when I, when my, so the case was thrown out and basically the uh, judges told Karl Lagerfeld that he didn't have a case to, to, um, to put forward. Uh, and so it was also at the same time, and this, this was my whole experience in Paris, actually, I, I, I could have this very dark experience. And yet there was this incredible love there as well and support so, so uh, yeah, and, and the depression, I mean, a lot of people have suffered from depression. And while, of course, uh, I don't look back on it with fondness, I agree with you. It was this amazing process which 
through which I was able to actually channel my creativity, strangely enough, at the end of it, and then mm. be able to open myself out into fiction, which I'm so, now I feel I'm in such, you know, I feel as if I've come home. It's this wonderful place to be in fiction. Yes. Oh, well, I'm so happy that you came through the other side, so Thank to speak. You. And yeah, I loved your first novel. But before we get into talking about it a little bit more, would you read an extract from I Love You Too Much? I would love to, Amanda. So if it's okay with you, can I do, I've got two short extracts. So one, I thought I could do the, the opening that you just talked about to set the scene in mm. Paris. And then I've got one in Morocco, if that's okay. That would be lovely. Thank you. Everyone thinks they know Paris, the Eiffel Tower and the old man playing an accordion in the street, couples kissing in cafes and horse chestnut blossom on fire in the green trees. They don't know about the secret code to get into your apartment building. They don't know about waiting for the lift to come, watching the thick black cable churn up the lift shaft. They've never been to a children's party here, Never felt the party entertainer grab their wrist and say between his teeth, that is enough, ça suffit. There are no dirty shoes in the sixième where I live. There is nowhere to get dirty. There are only pavements in the Jardin du Luxembourg. There is grass in the Jardin, but you are not allowed to walk on it. And when there is snow, they close the Jardin. And when there is wind, they put up a sign that says, danger, risk of violent winds, beware of falling branches. My Paris is the one same street between school and home. It is grey apartment buildings and heavy wooden doors that you step through into dark courtyards, still and damp where the ivy grows. My Paris is the sound of the concierge's hoover banging up against the front door and water pipes flushing baths away above my head. It is empty corridors of polished parquet four floors up and my feet not touching the ground. I hear the neighbours shout when Paris Saint-Germain score. I hear the surge of the rubbish truck at night in the street below. It is many lives lived alone. I was a child once in Paris. So that is the opening scene of my novel. And then I'm going to just flick on a bit, hope, and find you this scene. So this is when um, Paul's remembering uh, the last holiday he went on with his parents when um, just before they... Um, then divorced. So they're in um, a Riyadh in, in Morocco. I liked the Riyadh. It was cool inside after the heat outside and the staff crept around on marble floors as if they didn't dare make a sound. There was a stone basin in the courtyard with big orange fish in it and a little fountain that sprinkled water all the time. But then Maman found out Estelle had taken the lush white bedroom overlooking the swimming pool. It was the bedroom that was in all the photos Maman had shown me when she booked the Riyadh. It had billowing white curtains a four-poster bed and a huge white marble bath in the middle of the bathroom that you stepped down into. I remember in the photos there were red rose petals all over the bathroom floor and a sultry-looking babe lying on the middle of the bed wearing a white jalaba. Sorry, jalaba. I knew she'd do that, Mamal said, as she slammed the door to the smaller blue and white bedroom Estelle had left my parents. It's me that finds the Riyadh and organises the holiday, and Estelle just swans in and takes the best bedroom, all because of your bike, your bike, your ego, Philippe. She shouted the last words, punched them out as she threw her handbag down onto the bed. Your friend, your problem, my father said. He was on his phone and he didn't bother looking up. Estelle was standing at the bottom of the stairs when Maman and I went back down. Listen, darling, you don't mind about the bathroom, do you? Estelle said. 
She was barefoot and smelled of coconut oil. Her red bikini was wet and heavy against her skin. Her eyes were like green marbles watching Maman. She'd had her breasts done after her divorce, which meant she now had enormous tits that she showed off whenever she could. There were water droplets caught between them, skating down her oily cleavage. Only I need to be by Max's bedroom, she said, rolling her eyes, to keep an eye on him. Max is a gaming freak of a son who spends his life on Grand Theft Auto and then goes to see a psychiatrist twice a week to talk about it. He'd failed all his written assessments and he was being made to stay down a year. Of course not, ma belle, Maman said. You absolutely need to watch out for him. Staying down a year, what a nightmare, Maman sucked in her breath. How do you think that happened? Estelle flinched when Maman said that. Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much. One thing that I really admired um, when I read your book was how well you captured the voice of Paul, who is only 13, and you write about him at a time when his world is really fracturing. His parents have just divorced. They're very narcissistic people. They don't really have a lot of time for them. And also his mother has just given birth to his baby sister. So what time she had is now divided even more. Were you anxious about being able to get into the head of a character so different from your own and make that authentic voice of a teenage boy really come to life? Or did that really come very easily to you? Um, Okay, well, I'm not sure anything came very easily because I did spend an awful long time writing this novel. I spent seven years writing it. And I've got five children, so I don't write... Uh, so, for instance, school holidays, my kids are about to break up in an hour and that'll be writing done. You know, I won't be able to write for three, three, <laughs> three weeks. So, so within those parameters, I did still spend a long time on this novel and I have written drafts and drafts and drafts. I must have written at least seven or eight drafts and I wrote, wrote a whole draft in French. Oh, wow. So, Miranda, within that, having, having prefaced it by saying that, actually, Paul, when Paul came to me, uh, it was sort of incredible. He came to me and I just understood him and I did, I understood his pain. His voice came to me in a, in a kind of line of dialogue to begin with the time that what really helped was when I sat down and wrote the draft in French, because then I could really listen to him because the way I've written the novel is I've tried to write it. It's written in the first person. It's written in the first person as Paul. I tried to write as he would speak, and I tried to write as a French person would speak, except translated into English, if you see what I mean. Um, mm. So that the best thing that I did for the novel and for Paul was writing in French, and then I could hear him. I could allow him to say what he wanted to say, and also his parents, because Séverine um, and Philippe, his parents, I allowed them to talk in the way French parents talk, which is very different to the way uh, English or British parents might talk to their children. Um, so allowing them to speak in French really opened up the character and, and gave me a much greater understanding of my own characters. So with Paul, I I really just understood him. I had spent years and years listening to, to children, listening to parents, um, in all sorts of different situations. So we used to live by the Jardin du Luxembourg and I, I used to walk back and forth across mm. that Jardin with all my different children. And 
I used to listen to conversations. I used to watch children. I, you know, I guess I also was in contact with my own loneliness as, as a child. Um, although my childhood was nothing like boys. Um, well, I think it's really fascinating that you wrote a draft in French and it sounds like you almost heard it in French before writing it in English. And I think that really adds to the authenticity that you feel of both the setting, but also of all these characters' voices. They do feel very French. But I find it interesting too that you speak of the loneliness of childhood and you feel so sorry for Paul because although he has every luxury he is such an isolated and in many ways unloved character do you think that there is a particular quality of loneliness that is felt most keenly when you're young yes I do actually because I think it is a time during adolescence when you are trying to make sense of so many different relationships, so friendship uh, relationships that you might have at at school, parental relationships. In Paul's case, he's he's trying to make sense of his parental relationship, of his cousins, of his um, of his aunt and uncle, of his grandparents. He's trying to find where it, where does he fit in? How is he perceived? So you're very aware of of how you're perceived by others, um, because of course you are perceived by others. You're perceived, you know. Say if you have a set of cousins, which which Paul does, he was the non-hero because he's not good at any of the French things that you're supposed to be good at in that bourgeois privileged setting. So he's not good at maths and he's not good at tennis. So he has this. He he knows where he is. He knows that he's the bottom of the pile. He knows how he's perceived, and I, I think as you become an older person, you perhaps gain confidence. I'm not saying you can't be lonely, but you you have more of you, your sense of self is more developed, um, constructed. You have perhaps a greater pool of people that you meet in life to make friendships, to, to make friends. Whereas when you're a teenager, you've got those people at school um, and perhaps you're not going to find a friend at, at that school. So I think for all these reasons that the, the sense of self is not yet developed um, and it's this burgeoning, um, and you also have your sexuality, of course, that's the burgeoning sexuality and, and insecurity um, that that can bring to one and, and, and how you're perceived among your peers. I've talked about how you're perceived among family, but also how you're perceived among peers and where you are in that pecking order and children I mean I talked to funny enough I was talking to one of my children a 13 year old the other day um and she was talking about the, the, the cool people at school children are very aware you know exactly where you are in the pecking order you know and 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 adults I think we're so disingenuous at times when we talk to children about that um children know exactly where they are we're all animals we all understand where we we are on the social pecking order so so all those um, all those con- that that context rather can I think make teenage years, adolescence, extraordinarily lonely. Yes, oh, I I really agree. And in your book, it's food that Paul really turns to for comfort, and. I thought that was such a clever twist to your story because, of course, Paris is so 
well known for its patisseries, its amazing food. Um, But also equally, French people are always being applauded for their trim figures and their glamorous personas. And in your book, food is described wonderfully, but it's also shown to be quite a complicated, if not destructive, force in Paul's life. And I wondered, was this contradictory relationship with food and physical appearance something that you particularly noticed during your years living in Paris? What I noticed living in Paris is the extraordinary discipline that French people bring to food. So if we were let loose in France, most Anglo-Saxon, if I can call us that, um, would, you know, would be gorging ourselves on croissants and mons and pain chocolat, you know, about sort of 10 a day. Um, and, and, and breakfast would probably run from about seven through till midday, I'm guessing, I'm guessing. Um, whereas, you know, the French, most of them aren't eating croissant every morning for a start. Um, and and if they do, you can rest assured it's one. Um, and so they, they, they have an extraordinary discipline but then they're also enforcing that discipline. I mean, I've heard French women talk to their children in a way that, that we would never say, you know, attention, uh, tu vas être grosse. So if you eat that, you know, watch out, you're going to be fat. Mm. This the, fat, the idea of fat mm. is this kind of horreur, really an horreur. It, it's, it's, um, what could be worse than to be fat? In fact, I've read about it recently. This, um, there's a, oh, I can't remember her name. There's a wonderful woman who is obese, who is blogging, um, French woman, and talking about her life, the um, prejudice that she has had to you know, withstand uh, in terms of trying to get a job, et cetera, mm. et cetera. Um, so the French, for them, fat is this greatest fear. Um, and for the parents in my novel, for Philippe and Séverine, who are all about control and about their appearance, and, and at this period in the book, they are approaching middle age. And so whether or not consciously or subconsciously, they can feel that they're control of their appearance is slipping. Severine is well aware. She's already started the Botox on the lines, the special things that make your permit that make your, you know, cheeks sort of pop up. Um, she, she's doing all that because she knows, actually, I don't think she knows, but she can sense the power, the power of her beauty is, is starting to wane. Um, and so, they are obsessed, and Philippe is obsessed about his body. Again, he's approaching those middle age years, and he's a and he's a male thinking, uh, a sort of alpha male thinking that you know he's going to prove himself day after day with triathlon and you know more and more physical endurance. And for Paul, I wanted to give him, uh, I wanted to give him love. I wanted to give him comfort that he could find um, a- around him every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. There are children who are either using anorexia as a way of control. Um, I think there's a, that's a, that's something that's that's very prevalent in Paris, not just among females, female and male. Um, uh, more and more, I think, uh, in a way, trying to not fight back, but 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 show some control over their lives, and in a way that will cause pain to parents, because there's also that. It's 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 um. You know, it, it causes pain uh, to parents by, by, I think that was part of Paul's um, 
motivation. Yes, well, I mean, eating disorders are such a, you know, such complicated things. Um, But certainly we're living in an increasingly image conscious world. Um, So there are these huge pressures that people are under, adults and teenagers and children, sadly, alike. Um, And I thought you showed this so well in your book. And I really liked that you showed that it's very much the same for men as for women because sometimes eating disorders can be more associated with women but in fact a lot of men suffer from them in the same way absolutely so yeah I thought that was very powerful but I was also really interested in Paul's relationship with his parents and I listened to a very interesting interview that you gave on Women's Hour when you spoke more about typical parenting styles in France. How would you say parenting is different in France than it is in Britain? The word that I come back to again and again and again is sentimental. I think we are very sentimental. Um, certainly, I'm very sentimental, and I've seen others in the way that we approach parenting and children. So we're all about, oh, darling, are you okay? Oh, you've hurt yourself. Oh, sweetheart, you know, darling, that kind of parenting. Uh, you don't hear in the street this expression that you hear in France, which is, do you know, I don't know if it's infissi, my, my children will correct me. I think it's infissi. Do you know, do you want to smack? Um, that is something that you still hear on the streets in Paris and really quite, quite, quite regularly. Um, they are much tougher, much more disciplined, much harder on their children than we are. Now, I think we have gone to quite an extreme I've noticed because I had all my children in in France um, and then uh, in Paris and then I came back and and I was quite astonished at the change that has that has happened or, or maybe 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 it's not a change hang on because I didn't have my children here so uh, well I, I certainly wasn't brought up that way put it that way but there is there is now uh, there is now I would say the child is is uh, roi ou reine, the child is kind of king or queen in in this country whereas in france it's much more about the parents and the child does what the child is supposed to do um uh, and there's much more discipline if i give you an example i remember my cousin saying to me that on friday nights she she's got three wonderful boys and i remember when i first got back to england she said to me on friday nights they go to the local cricket club and they watch the boys do coaching. The husband does the coaching, and you know they eat a packet of crisps and uh, have a pint, and and that's their Friday night. And I remember I didn't say it to her, but I remember internally thinking, "Oh my gosh, quelle horreur!" You know, like that's the worst. Imagine that. Imagine <laughs> your life being that, which is pretty much what my life is now. Except no, it's not cricket, but no. you can put in another sport. So it's riding, and um. And no self-respecting French couple, Parisian couple, would ever spend their Friday nights going to cricket coaching or any kind of coaching for their child. They would be going out to dinner. The child would be with a babysitter. So la vie de couple, so the couple's life, is very, is really at the centre. Is very, and then outside are the children. Yeah, mm. that's it. Okay, so the couple is at the centre with their needs and their. Uh, their life and their and their ego, their ego and their 
yeah, their, their, their job, their career and their interests and their apparence, their parents and their dinner and their dinner parties. And then the children are around as kind of satellites. Whereas I would say here now mm. it's the child at the center. And then we, the parents are kind of around the outside mm. servicing the child. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. So please don't people get angry with me. I'm just, I'm just t- observing. <laughs> No, exactly. Well, and I've I've noticed uh, the same, the same things myself um, because okay. I grew up partly in France, and I do think that the parenting styles are very different between France and the UK. And I find it very interesting to notice those differences. Yes, like you say, not saying one is right or wrong, oh, but there so is you, a real you, difference. So, what kind of difference and, did you notice then? Um, Well, a lot of what you've been saying, really, I think, um, yes, you know, the parents would really take time for themselves a lot too. you know, their relationship as a couple, um, and those friends. And so, you know, that was still very integral to their lives. And there was a bit maybe more separation in some ways, or a a different family dynamic, I suppose, than than what you see here, where yes, often, people really do um, revolve everything around the child at the centre, like you say. Now, poor Paul (laughs) has um, really very selfish parents, and there's a lot that is incredibly upsetting that happens in the book. But I like to feel, and I, I want to ask you about this, because I like to feel there's a glimmer of hope at the end of it and that he does seem to find someone to love and to care for his baby sister is that what you felt or did you feel that his future would be quite dark or you know was there a ray of hope for him no, I think there's definitely a ray of hope for him. For a lot now, for a long time and for many drafts, there was no ray of hope for him. And in fact, I didn't know how I didn't know what his destiny would be, put it that way, for very many drafts. Mm-hmm. Um, I do believe that I Paul he seems so wise to me and he even in the retelling of his story as he tells it, he's already digesting it. Um, Mm. The wonderful thing was he had Cindy in his life throughout. Cindy is the Filipino, what the French would describe as a babysitter who actually does everything, cleaning, you know, nannies, like everything, but the French would call her a babysitter. And she gave him this wonderful love and constant. She was there. She was a constant in his life. Um, And so he always was able to accept love throughout whatever Mm -hmm. happened he still was able to accept love and yes he used food as love as well and as comfort and then Lou comes into his life and by the end of the novel I really agree with you Miranda I do think he also shows us his capacity to give love um, which Mm -hmm. means that Although he has endured much and um, has withstood a lot of pain and has been disappointed on so many levels from those around him, um, I, I, I do think there is hope for Paul. Well, I'm so happy to hear that. But it's been such a pleasure to chat to you today, Alicia. And before we end this, may I just ask, what's next for you? Are there any upcoming events or future books that you're working on that you're able to talk about at all at this time? 
So um, in terms of novel, I, I've... I've got an idea. So this this started with this kind of obsessions and themes. I, I love you too much, and I've got some obsessions that have started. So that's always a good a good feeling. Although I haven't started writing yet, mm. but I've got these obsessions. So I think I will start writing. I'm going to um, Britain in about a week, and I'm going to take my uh, notebook and I'm going to hopefully start just writing some of those ideas down um to to give that and then um mm. I'm, I'm doing um i'm doing some lovely book events coming up uh, which i'm going to actually update on my on my website but i'm going to go to um i'm doing blackwells in oxford i'm going to go to um drake's bookshop in stockton on tees and waterstones in north allerton so i've got some lovely um events at bookshops to do which i'm really really excited about Oh, that's wonderful. And so if people would like to keep up with your news and your upcoming events, where can they find you online? My uh, website is aliciadrake.uk, not aliciadrake.com. If you do that, then you get onto a real estate seller in Los Angeles. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if, you want, if you want the writer of I Love You Too Much, then it's Alicia Drake.uk, www. And then, um, and I'm also on Instagram where I met you, um, which is, um, and I'm so glad I met you. It's yes. been so great, Miranda. Thank you for this lovely interview. And so on Instagram, I'm at Alicia Drake 7. Brilliant. Well, I'll be sure to put links to all of those in the show notes for this episode and, of course, a link to your amazing book. But, yes, thank you so much again for coming on Tea and Tattle. I've so enjoyed our conversation today. Well, I have because I listened to Tea and Tattle. So I, I, when you invited me, I was just so thrilled and really, really honoured. Thank you very much. And that's it for this episode of Tea and Tattle. Thank you so much again to Alicia for her wonderful interview. For the show notes, extra links and photos, check out the corresponding blog post at teantattlepodcast.com forward slash home forward slash 79. Do get in touch and tell me what you enjoyed most about this episode and whether you're eager to read I Love You Too Much. You can contact me on Instagram at both Miranda's Notebook and Miranda's Bookcase or you can email me at teaandtattlepodcast at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd be so grateful if you shared it with a friend who you think might like it too or leave a review on iTunes. Great reviews really help other people to find the show. You can also sign up to receive the Tea and Tattle newsletter and latest episodes at teaandtattlepodcast.com forward slash subscribe. Thanks so much for listening. Remember to tune in again this Friday for a mini Tea Reads episode and again next Tuesday for a regular full-length discussion. Until then, keep well, be joyful and stay in touch.